Good afternoon and thank you all for joining today's Rockefeller Capital Management special client event. Today's event is the seventh in our series and will be a conversation between Greg Fleming and the CEO of Bridgewater Associates, David McCormick. A recording of this event will be available shortly after we conclude through our website, rcm.rocco.com, and through the Rockefeller Client Insights podcast series, which can be found on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Without further ado, please allow me to introduce our president and CEO, Greg Fleming. Thanks, Tom. Good afternoon, everybody. Clients of Rockefeller, our Rockefeller team, and other friends of Rockefeller. And as Tom said, welcome to our seventh in this series of special client events during this historic time. It's my great pleasure today to have David McCormick, the Chief Executive Officer of Bridgewater Associates, the largest hedge fund in the world with us. David has had an incredible career making his mark in many different arenas. To tick off a few of these things, he's a West Point graduate. He's a veteran of the first Gulf War, started his career as a McKinsey consultant. He uh, was a successful technology entrepreneur. He then served uh, in uh, Bush 45, the Bush 45 administration uh, during the credit crisis. After that, he came uh, out of the administration and went to work for uh, Bridgewater as president and worked his way uh, from there uh, up to co-CEO and then CEO. Uh, David has a perspective that cuts across uh, all the different topics that are of interest to the people on this phone. So uh, it's great to have him here today and we'll really cover the, cover the gamut. So David, uh, good afternoon and welcome. Oh, thanks so much. I'm happy to be with you. Great to have you here. Um, why don't we start, uh, David, uh, with um, the, the macro uh, picture, which you spend a lot of time looking at, uh, analyzing. Obviously, a lot of that goes into what the work you do for clients at Bridgewater, uh, but it, it's broader than that. You're running a big company as well. Um, what's your take uh, as a backdrop here on, on the economy overall? And then we'll get to the steps that government and Fed and others are trying to take. But, um, you know, are we... Um, are, are we starting to pull out of the bottoming process and moving forward? Uh, but don't let me put words in your mouth. Uh, let, let's start with the, the macro overview. Yeah, well, you, all of us uh, who lived through 2008, I think we, we probably came out the other side of that and thought, boy, I'm glad, I'm glad we're never going to have to deal with anything like that again. And, um, and here we are uh, a little more than 10 years later. And, and, but what we're experiencing is, is of a size and a magnitude that's unprecedented. We're, we're experiencing a global income shock, the speed and magnitude of which is, is really unprecedented. And, um, and without an enormous policy response, you'd get a, you know, a self-reinforcing collapse in spending and income. And, uh, and our estimates are just uh, based on not a, a pessimistic scenario, but sort of a, a base case that something like $27 trillion of global revenue and, uh, and five and a half to six trillion in the U.S. alone um, uh, evaporated as a consequence of this. But, but what's different about this is it's not like 2008, which was really a credit crisis where, um, where the Federal Reserve could cut rates and, uh, and print, and that would be a response that would you know, have an enormous impact. We're in a situation now where the response has to be really a combination of fiscal and monetary, again, of a size that, uh, that the world's uh, never seen. Uh, two more comments, and then we can elaborate on it further as we go. What we're seeing in this is an enormous uh, set of differences across countries. And so if you think about, um, if you think about countries, you, you'll see how each of them has responded to the pandemic, which is a big driver of, uh, of, of, of how things have played out economically. But you're also seeing um, very different responses, very different capabilities and responses from a, a policy perspective. So countries with weak currencies that don't have the um, ability to, to, to print um, have, um, have real risk to their currencies and, and risk on inflation. And you're seeing you're seeing that in places like Mexico and Italy and Spain and Brazil, uh, where other countries like the U.S. and Korea and um, and China are faring better in terms of, of the response. So a very complicated uh, global macro situation. 
I'll say um, I'll say one more thing, which uh, and then close on this, which is that this is we didn't see the pandemic coming uh, nearly in the way that it came with the magnitude. But but what we were talking about for you know really years before that was an acceleration of a paradigm shift, and the paradigm shift has really been accelerated by uh, the pandemic, which uh, you're now at a point where you're at you know low or zero interest rates. You have limited monetary effectiveness, and you also have growing challenges with polarization and political uh, outcomes, and that creates a very wide range of potential outcomes um, for the economy and for markets. And so if you're thinking about this as an investor, um, to state the obvious, we're in very uncertain times where the range of, of economic outcomes and the range of how different asset classes will perform um, could, be, could be varied. And that obviously uh, creates lots of challenges for uh, all of us who are thinking about deploying capital. So let me stop there because I know there's lots we can explore yeah. there, Greg. Yeah, David, let, let's go. I hadn't heard that number, so and it's uh, not surprising given the quality of the research that comes out of uh, Bridgewater. The $27 trillion in global revenue, uh, and I guess about a quarter of it, not surprisingly, American, which is roughly our percentage of global GDP. Um, how much of that can come back uh, as we put people back out in society? Before we get to the pacing of that and the whole political issue around that, it, how much of that is um, is a dip that that can come back? Forget the pace for a second, but just or you know, is a lot of that twenty-seven trillion dollars in revenue uh, going to struggle to come back because of whatever changes of behavior, because of automation that companies pursue, given the challenge of having people do things? Uh, what what are your thoughts around uh, recapturing that twenty-seven trillion? Yeah, well, let's uh, break it into two dimensions. One is the pace by which it'll come back, and then the other is the degree to which it'll come back. Uh, so with regard to pace, it's a little bit of what I was alluding to earlier, which is you're seeing dramatically different levels of, of recovery based on different countries. And even in some cases within our own country, although it's, it's too early to, I think, draw judgment across states. And that's driven by two factors. Um, one is the capacity to contain and mitigate the pandemic. And, um, you know, we see this playing out in the news every day. But, but really, that's a byproduct of uh, uh, the containment and the mitigation is a byproduct of social behavior, and it's a byproduct of testing. And so um, to the degree that the social behavior uh, snaps into effect, the social distancing, they're not um, you know, wearing masks, they're not coming into public places, you can see a very tangible impact in the data. And if that's combined with high-quality testing, uh, you see the curve flattening um, relatively quickly. Uh, and so the pace of recovery is driven in part by that. It's also driven in part by um, the ability to ease and the ability to generate um, sufficient uh, stimulus, fiscal stimulus, to offset this. So if you think about like a global spreadsheet <laughs> as an example with um, countries and in each country, every company, well, if you think about that stimulus overlaid on top of that $6 trillion um, in the U.S. as an example, then how does that offset the losses on balance sheets and income statements? And, and that's a second factor that will determine how much of this comes back and how businesses are able to stay in business until the recovery, until recovery comes. And so uh, if you look at that, um, I think it would give you um, a, a relatively somber assessment of of, of the pace uh, of recovery, because if you look at China as an example, a place where the conditions that I just described, the ability to contain and the ability to ease and respond are both pretty significant, even today China is at about 75% of economic activity, and so um, it's still pretty impaired uh, by what's occurred, and that's a, that's a case that it's very likely that few other countries are going to be able to replicate. Um, then add on top of that the fact that we're not sure whether the virus will return in other forms. And so I think on pace you're looking at a, a, an economy in the U.S. and around the world that's fairly significant, significantly impaired well into uh, 2021 and maybe throughout 2021 and even well into 2022. Um, so that's one dimension, that's pace. The second thing um, which you talked about was the, in absolute levels, and I think this is really – uh, something that's very hard to predict. 
but uh, I think it's one of those things where we all probably feel intuitively that things won't return uh, exactly as they were. Things are going to change. I know in my own company, and I'm, I suspect you're feeling the same thing, Greg, with, uh, we have 1,500 people. We travel constantly to see clients. We're, um, we have a certain engagement model for how we deal with, with uh, our collaboration internally and externally. All of the basic assumptions that underlie that are, are being questioned. Um, we're, we've made this transition to uh, virtual much more effectively than we thought. Um, we're innovating in ways that we're dealing with our clients. We're innovating in ways we're dealing uh, internally. And so I think that if I just imagine 6, 12, 24 months from now for Bridgewater, I think we'll probably deal differently with our clients in terms of how we engage with them. I think we'll probably have different work-from-home policies. My guess is we'll have a different real estate footprint. All those things will change, not because we're trying to cut costs or anything like that, but because we're finding better ways to perform our, uh, um, our mission and achieve our goals. And so I don't think the economy will come back at the same level. Now, there will be aspects of that innovation which will be wonderful in terms of productivity and enhancement and create new businesses and new opportunities. But there will also be lots of the old way of doing things that will be, um, uh, I think, permanently uh, impaired and ultimately uh, will go away. Yeah, no, we, we're in this, as you and I have talked, we're, we're in the same spot in, in terms of uh, working remotely and efficacy of it. Uh, and, and and the fact of the matter is because so many people were able to move so quickly to do this well that a lot of it is going to uh, be sustained and maintained over many years going forward. I mean, there is going to be long-term secular change. Uh, and then, you know, one of the things you mentioned, David, is uh, dealing with clients. I mean, the impact with clients is, uh, is high in terms of getting in into their houses and their living rooms and uh, so, you know, we developed uh, relationships and extended relationships that it would have been harder to do before you went to such uh, uh, remote uh, remote work. So I think the, those things, as you and I have kicked around, are, um, are, are certainly going to be here for the long run. And they will, as you said, bring changes that uh, that have an economic impact as well. Um, David, one one thing to that you you served uh, with Bush 45 in the middle of a very difficult time and, and did so very effectively. Uh, and the final analysis, that you said, the credit crisis was was quite a challenge, but it, it is now being, uh, you know, the scale of this, the breadth of this, the, the duration of this is going to be longer and bigger. Um, the government reaction so far. Uh, you know, I've said to people, I think that uh, the federal government, Secretary Mnuchin, the scale of the fiscal response quickly, the jobs program to try to um, get, uh, uh, you know, uh, a program in place to keep employees from being let go for the small business sector. They've done a, a very good job. Uh, it's not perfect. There's still much more to do. And the Fed's also stepped up in a big way. But you've got a, uh, a very close uh, perspective on this, having been in the the last crisis. Can, can you talk a little bit about the efficacy of the government so far? So the uh, just reflecting back on that for a second, Craig, going back to 2008, you know, if you just look at, compare those two, um, it's, it's kind of remarkable in some ways. Um, living through the um, 2008 crisis, um, we were, uh, you know, simultaneously trying to understand the underlying nature and the risk and so forth and develop policies on the fly there was lots of iteration. Um, ultimately, the crisis had to sort of reach its nadir before the political response, both you know, from a, from a, both parties, was able to justify the kind of uh, of, of intervention that was required. That came um, in bits and pieces, and with lots of um, hard work on the part of um, the Treasury Secretary and the Fed Chair to to bring policymakers and, and lawmakers along. Um, what came out of that was a, a response that brought the economy back, but I think um, ultimately the intervention and the 10 years that followed uh, was a period where all asset holders were the great beneficiaries of the policy intervention, and, um, and all, all assets performed over the last 10 years in a, in a way that, um, um, you know, from an historical perspective, it's been the best 10 years for assets in the last 100 years. Um, and one of the byproducts of that was if you didn't hold assets, um, you weren't the beneficiary in the same way. And so it's one of the reasons, not the only reason, that the, 
that the gap um, that we see in American society uh, between the haves and have-nots has, um, has become much exacerbated by this. I make that point because that's the backdrop with which we go into this next crisis. And, um, and so uh, you see a couple things in the policy response that I think are reflective of those learnings. Uh, you see in Secretary Mnuchin and the ec economic team, uh, I, and, and, and both sides of, of the divide politically, an unbelievably rapid response in orders of magnitude, both on the monetary side and the fiscal side, in a matter of three weeks, uh, many orders of magnitude uh, more than what happened in 2008. And I think justified, given the magnitude, given my earlier comments of the magnitude of the income shock. Uh, and so every effort to bring the economy you know, back from, from depression, and as I said, as, as enormous as those responses were, they don't offset they don't nearly offset all the, the economic destruction and damage that's been done. The other thing that's different on this policy response from the policy response in 2008 is, in part because of what I'm saying, it's very much directed to trying to get into the hands of workers, trying to get to small businesses, trying to get to that part of the economy that is, um, is, is suffering most as a consequence of the dramatic decline in demand. And I think at a big picture level, that's been um, you know, terrific in the sense that it's been of, of enormous size, it's been of enormous speed, and it's had universal bipartisan support, at least up till this point. So I think all those are great things. As you said, whenever you're throwing that much money <laughs> into the system that quickly, um, there's going to be all sorts of aspects of that that will be you know, under-visualized, um, possibly the money going into the wrong hands. Um, you know, not the, you know, not, it's not going to be precise. It's not going to be perfect. And that's just, I think, goes with the nature of it. But I would give, I would give that overall economic response pretty high marks. And I, I'm sorry to say, I don't think it'll be enough. And I think there'll need to be continued um, versions of, of MP3, the combination of monetary and fiscal policy, to deal with um, uh, what I was describing earlier, which is, I'm afraid this is going to be an extended period of, uh, of economic challenge. Yeah, and and David, one of the things that uh, we we were talking about, uh, you and I have talked about, is how uh, as we start to gear back up and and uh, as states, state by state, starts to open up, you know, we have uh, offices around the country, uh, including Atlanta and, and uh, in in Texas, um, that uh, that that are uh, looking to reopen next week, as the governors have, have taken the lead on that. Um, it's become highly politicized, though, uh, you know, how this is occurring. And again, you know, you, you were in the Bush administration in a senior role and you continue to stay close to, uh, you know, to lots in the leadership. Um, any, is it just that the United States and Jim Messina had a spectacular fact last week that I'd never heard. He said that 90 percent of Americans um, know who they're going to vote for uh uh, you know, on a regular basis rolling into a presidential election and that it's now down to 10 percent that swings it one way or the other. And in other countries, the 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 uh, the percentage that will go back and forth between parties is as high as 40 percent in some of the countries that he uh, works in around the world. So it's it's a pretty narrow group that's tilting one way or another. Is yeah. it just endemic to us now, or you know, is almost everything going to become politicized, including the speed with which uh, states and, and uh, local leadership opens up the economy? Well, I think, um, uh, let me make a, a, a comment on the politics of it, and then just a substantive point about, about headed back. On the politics, you know, I think it's reflective of what you're describing, unfortunately, which is the degree of polarization in the country. And, um, and you see that uh, that's not a party-specific issue, that you see that on both, in both parties, you see, see the extremes uh, gaining um, a more significant voice. Uh, you see um, less bipartisan responses to things. You see less joint sponsorship of bills. Um, there's a number of underlying root causes of that that go back to everything from gerrymandering, gerrymandering to special interest uh, to um, you know, the kinds of people that are running for public office these days, there's a whole range of underlying reasons for that, but it's, uh, there's no doubt that from a historical perspective, we've got an enormously high degree of polarization. 
that's fed in, in part also by um, some of the disparities that I described earlier, which um, help feed um, the ferocity of that political debate. And unfortunately, it puts it's a little bit of a backdrop uh, or an overlay on, on every policy discussion and every policy decision. I think you see that playing out in different states with governors. I think you see it playing out in the Congress. And um, I, you know, I don't think there's a single uh, person or party that you can point to. It's a joint responsibility and, a, and sort of a joint failure uh, that that exists. It's also, I think there's lots of good research that suggests it's highly exacerbated by the rise of social media and the, con the ability for um, the extremes on both sides to have a voice and a platform for building followership and expressing, which, which didn't exist even 10 years ago uh, uh, when I was in government. It's a much more powerful force in the political debate. So I think that's a challenge. It's a challenge we're going to have to work our way through, and um, it makes policymaking harder. Um, in some ways, I'm heartened by how quickly the government was able to move on a bipartisan basis in, in light of the crisis. I think it was just the magnitude of the, of the, of the risk and exposure uh, allowed everybody to move forward in a fairly uh, aligned and, uh, and collaborative way. But that won't persist, and it'll get it'll you know now that the moment of the peak of the crisis appears to have waned, um, I think you're going to see that, um, particularly in a presidential year, come to the surface more. Just on that, can I just jump, because, you know, they, they don't get enough credit, the administration and even the Congress, um, because you remember, you and I had the front row seat uh, in the credit crisis, where the first TARP was voted down. You were designing the TARP, sitting right there in, in the administration, rolling it out. And actually, uh, because of that, I'm going to get you to expand on this. But I'm on the on the other side. I, I, I think we had we had uh, we'd sold to Bank America. So it was Merrill Lynch Bank America. But it's 08. Uh, you roll out the first tarp. It's voted down. The stock market drops a thousand points in, in literally like 10 minutes. Uh, it took a long time for the government to to really pull it together there in the credit crisis here to the credit of the leadership. And, and again, I think social media doesn't allow this to happen because everybody, you know, people get in their sides and they say, he, you know, this the administration did well or the Democrats did well. But the reality is they, they lined up pretty quickly, as did the Fed out of the gate here in, in, a, in a fashion that was overwhelming for those like you and I who have watched this for decades. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I think um, that's a real that's a real tribute. And I, I, I don't. Uh, I think the attribution must be, uh, at, at least in large part, it was one of those things where the, the magnitude and the size of the of the uh, of the drop in economic activity, essentially closing down the economy, and the implications around the world. I I think the severity of that brought soberness and and uh, objectivity to a rare moment of soberness and objectivity to the discussion. But I'm with you. I think I think that everybody should get everybody involved should get high marks for that recognizing, um, as I said before, that it's, it's going to be imperfect and it's, they're going to have to evolve. And that was one of the learnings from the TARP um, and one of the reasons I have such regard for uh, Hank Paulson, which is, uh, and this is the nature, of, I've unfortunately been in a couple crises before, the nature of crises is that uh, you're, you have to respond decisively and quickly and you're not going to get it perfectly right. And so the, the nature of the beast is that you have to be agile, open-minded, and evolve as you learn more. And when you try something and it doesn't work or it fails or it's not quite achieving the goal, you have to have the open-mindedness and, um, and the agility to be able to adopt. And that's, to his credit, what Paulson did on the, on the TARP, the, the original conception of the TARP uh, was uh, you know, a, a fund that would essentially be able to buy bad assets off bank balance sheets, as you know, Greg. And in the end, it became the it became the source of the capital that was injected on the bank balance sheets, which ultimately accomplished at least part of the goal. And so, um, you know, I'm I'm suspecting, unfortunately, that uh, our policymakers are going to continue to have to learn that lesson, which is this isn't going to be perfect, and there's going to be parts of the economy that struggle, and there's going to be unforeseen second and third order consequences of the economic destruction we've already seen that they're going to have to be agile and respond to. And I hope that moment of bipartisan soberness and uh, objectivity can prevail. Yeah, uh, it's very well said, particularly given, as you said, that the, the, the number that's going to be required 
uh, if I go back to your 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 uh, discussion around pace here uh, and how long it's going to take to to get back or even get close to back, being much longer than anybody would have hoped uh, uh, two months ago, the ticket is going to go up. The dollars are going to have to keep coming, and they're going to have to work together, continue to work together to do that. Uh, and it, it, you know, it, it, the the upfront was was so shocking and. They were all, uh, you know, as I said, as we both said, they reacted well, but now they're they're starting to dig in a little bit on the two sides, and they can't because it's going to require a lot more money, right? I mean, it's a this this has so far been a down payment. No, no doubt about it. And the fear, um, among other things, but one of my fears, and you start to you start to see this a little bit in some of the names that are being, um, you know, put out in the press of of the beneficiaries and recipients. My fear is that politics being politics and special interest being special interest, that um, you know these government programs, which you know are of so much of such size um, that there's and there's so much money flowing around, they will become uh, an opportunity for lots of um, pork and lots of things being jammed into the stimulus that aren't actually necessary or aren't at the core of ensuring economic recovery. And so, um, you know, everybody's for, for often for very good reasons. Everybody's got their legislative priority, but as you think about, you know, the um, immediate crisis passing, and you think about future stimulus and future leg legislation, this is, and again, this isn't a partisan point. It's both parties. I think there's a risk that uh, the the core goal and the integrity of what these programs are trying to do gets corrupted, and uh, the money starts to flow into places that weren't really at the core of our economic recovery. And um, and that's you know, obviously a, is a real problem. You know, uh, David, that gets us to a topic that you're uh, you're writing on on a current basis. How you find time for this? I'm not sure. Um, but you just put together a piece that you called "Economic Might, National Security, and the Future of American Statecraft," and it starts to take us. I did want to talk to you about global because you've done so much travel and so much work. Um, but uh, you know, can can the way that we operate uh, from a government and political standpoint, you know, how is that going to going to hold together going forward? And talk a little bit about what you the, the thoughts you had in this piece, because, you know, uh, you and I were discussing uh, the Larry Summers uh, last couple of days, put a piece out and uh, you know, he's concerned about where it goes from here. Uh, you know, can the United States come out of this as a uh, as the or uh, a leading uh, economy continuing to provide leadership on a global geopolitical basis for decades to come. Uh, and, and he's questioning it a little bit. Uh, what are your thoughts on, on this? Uh, it was a good transition out of the, the, the fact that maybe the government starts to pull back into pork and sides and inability to get things done. Yeah, well, the, uh, thanks for asking about that. The, uh, the point I was, uh, trying to make it a piece it was it was it, it sort of evolved my thinking evolved in this but you know when I had served in the government one of the interesting reflections I had was that I was I was sort of the, a bridge between the economic team and a couple of the jobs I had but also the national security team and those two those two worlds are pretty separate in the government the people that make economic policy make economic policy and the people that make national security policy make national security policy and the, the thing that was occurring to me as I read about a, a number of things, but uh, particularly the changes in technology and so forth around the world, is that more so now than ever, our economic security and our economic might is at the core of our national security. And that, um, you know, the evolution of the global economy where you have all these are, are, are so interdependent and we're so, um, you know, so integrated from a supply chain perspective. Um, the, the rise of these transformational technologies, um, artificial intelligence, quantum science, um, have enormous implications for uh, not only economy, but our security. And, um, and then cyberspace, which has really changed the nature of, of risk and also changed the nature of, of possible elections and government oversight and so forth. All those factors uh, suggest to me we have a new world. And that if the United States is going to continue to uh, play a leadership role in that world, particularly given China's rise, but other countries as well, 
that we were going to have to rethink um, a number of ways that we make decisions internally, allocate resources, and think about our engagement with the world. That was sort of the thesis. And there's a number of different parts we could go into it, but, but just to pull out one that's particularly timely and on my mind is um, our investment as a country in R&D and um, next generation technologies. And, uh, and if you look at uh, our investment in R&D as a country, it's, a, it's, a, it's a half of what it was um, you know, 50 years ago. If you look at the nature of those technologies, they're sort of winner-take-all technologies. They're heavily subsidized around the world. If you look at what's happening in China as an example, they have a, the 2025 plan, which has identified 10 technologies, which will essentially assure their leadership in, in the world. And, and my basic thesis is, listen, it's a new game. And if the United States wants to compete in that game and be a, le a global leader, then we're going to have to think a little bit differently about our investments in innovation and technology, and we're going to have to do some things that are uncomfortable, for example, as a, as a card-carrying Republican, which is consider the notion of a very focused and targeted industrial policies uh, in support of private sector partnerships to help push our, our leadership and capabilities along in these technology areas. So there's lots more I could go into, but that's the thrust of it. So I think if you think about uh, recovery from COVID and, and think about it narrowly, like, hey, how do we get back to where we were? That would be the wrong frame of reference. I think the right frame of reference is certainly we want to bring the economy back to where we were, but we're also going to have to change our thinking about our economy and in particular around our technology leadership to uh, compete and prevail in the, you know, in the, next, uh, in the next decades to come. But David, as a leader, though, if we pursue it, because I, I think you're spot on, uh, and I think um, uh, being wedded to, uh, you know, trying to return to something coming out of COVID-19, A, is impossible, and B, would miss the point of trying to respond to this in a way where we uh, kind of get, get ahead of it. Uh, you know, when we come out, do things that put us uh, ahead of uh, the, the curve we were on before this. Um, but can you, you know, as a, as a, as you said, card-carrying Republican, but a leader in the party, can you get uh, the, you know, can we get the Republican Party there, and can you work with the other side on, on, uh, you know, on more of a, a public-private partnership to to put the United States in the position we all want to see our country, you know, 10, 20, 30, and 50 years from now? Is that is that something that's feasible in the current climate? I think so. You know, I, I hope so. Um, with regard to the technology leadership, I mean, I think that, um, and I know we'll, we'll talk about this in a minute, but just to foreshadow a bit, I mean, what's happened on the question of China and um, America's relationship with China is, is interesting because it's, it's become a, a very, you know, sort of bipartisan alignment uh, on concerns over China, I guess is the way I would say it. I want to come back to that in a minute when we, when we go to that topic, but I think those concerns are some ways um, very widespread about what to do and how to do it, and I think there's some good ideas embedded there and, um, and, and some bad ideas embedded there as well. But what is clear is that um, there's a growing understanding that technology, some of these technologies that, we're, that we're, are evolving are really changing the game, changing the game in terms of how, the mil how militaries fight, changing the game in terms of how economies operate, changing the, the, the game in terms of um, this notion of you know, military technology versus uh, uh, non-military civilian technology, those, those distinctions are being blended um, or, 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 are, or are dissipating, rather. There is, there is no distinction in many ways. And so I think that's becoming broadly understood and broadly under, uh, uh, accepted that these are game changers and that um, our ability to compete currently is not, um, is not where it needs to be. So, so I think there's a, a growing consensus around the problem. I think there's not yet consensus around what to do about it. And so one of the, in a very modest way, I was trying to help facilitate the debate around what to do about it by, by tr trying to be provocative with some ideas. And I think that'll take some time to get there. But the first step is that there's a growing recognition that we're on our back foot in this area and that more needs to be done. So, that, so I'm encouraged by that. I don't think that conversation can move forward about you know the role of America in the world, the future of capitalism, all these things that we're reading about without thinking very fundamentally 
Um, and I really think this is an underlying premise, underlying building block of American economic might, dealing with this inequality issue in a, um, in a very forthright way. And I think this will be harder to find some consensus on uh, because uh, it's so polarizing and people come at it from so many different ways. But I think, um, I think the one area where there might be common ground is this notion of equality of opportunity. And the one thing that we could all agree on, because it's, it's certainly uh, widely believed, and uh, it's, you see it in the polling, it's that for the first time in the history of our country, of, of modern America, uh, families believe, parents believe that their kids are going to be less well-off than they are. And we also see in the data that the ability for social mobility, where um, the lowest quartile socioeconomically can get to the third, second, or first quartile, is a, is a statistical matter, is lessening every day. And so that's a real problem because the entire country and the notion of capitalism was predicated on the idea that if you're smart and enterprising and you work hard, you can be anything. And um, the more that that's not in reality the case and the more it's perceived not to be the case, that um, then there has to be some underlying revision there. And so that's the that, that I think is an equally important challenge, and it may seem silly that I'm talking about that in terms of America's role in the world, but I think that undergirding of an economic system where you have broad-based participation and a common belief of an opportunity for betterment is a prerequisite of America's you know, economic might. And, um, and that's, a, that's a nubby issue that's going to take a lot of careful thinking. Listen, I think that you're spot on on that. And it's not a topic that we typically, that anybody typically goes to since the, the, the crisis unfolded. Um, but, you know, it is something that that is core to pulling us all together across the divide. And maybe the 10 percent becomes a bigger number because it's something that I'm struck. I'm struck by the pride that so many and I bring it too. Uh, I talk to my children about this was my grandfather. This is what he did. You know, he graduated from the second grade and went to work. Um, that notion is one of the fundamental uh, uh, themes that links the Americans together across party and across everything else. And if there is a uh, if there's an erosion in the perception that one can, uh, you know, come from a, a more modest financial or other background and still move ahead in our society, then then we can't in a hundred years be the greatest economy. It just won't happen. I think that's it. That's the secret sauce. And if you think about just you and I running companies, you we both know that part of um, making a company successful is is the people on your team believing. That there's a you know there's a there's success ahead that uh, by working hard today they can make the company better tomorrow uh, tomorrow and they can be the beneficiaries of that that's you know that's the thing that we're at risk of losing at the country level and um, and so it's a worry it's uh, it's really front of mind. Well, you're, you're you know both of your themes the the industrial policy across private public uh, sectors and bringing both parties along for that and inequality and bringing both parties along for solutions there. I agree with you. As hard as the former is, I think the latter will be even harder. Um, but that, that that is at the core of where we're going as a country. And we, we'll, we'll solve those things and be great or we won't. And it'll be a challenge. But let's go to the, the you know, the other countries that are in the mix because uh, you've got such good insight there as well. Why don't we start with Asia and, and within Asia, we'll talk about China because it is a complicated issue now, as you said. One of the few things you can get uh, both parties to agree on uh, uh, on a regular basis now is that uh, uh, there there's a skepticism and a wariness around uh, China. Can you talk about the relationship today and, and where you see that heading and you know how we uh, collectively us and them get that back on track, given that uh, you know uh, close to half of world GDP here certainly now and over time is in the two countries. Right. Yeah, that's a, ch a challenge, and you, I know you you have a lot of expertise here too. So please um, please uh, fill in any gaps that that I leave. Um, but but this is interesting uh, to me in part because my own views on this have uh, have changed and evolved a bit over the last decade, and I think it's um, it's indicative a little bit about what's going on in the country. But I think it's important to go back and just you know go back to WTO accession and and what. What was the nature of U.S.-China relationship, and how has it evolved? And I think there was a there was a bet that was made with bringing the China into the WTO and our economic engagement model was, and the bet was something like this: China is, you know, an a, criti a critical 
region and country uh, in the world, and by having uh, China engage, develop a market economy, and grow, um, uh, we will all be the beneficiaries. The world will be the beneficiary. The Chinese people will be the beneficiary. And, um, and that's proven to be true. China, it's been a, a remarkable success story in terms of China's economic model, its growth. You have to give a lot of credit uh, to um, the Chinese leadership for the way they've navigated that. But there was another part of the bet, um, which was that if we continue to engage with China and open U.S. markets to China, that China eventually would open uh, its markets to U.S. companies, and that uh, that would be of great benefit to both sides. And when I was in the Treasury, I was part of the team that was working uh, with the Chinese and negotiating uh, these things. And I think if you just honestly did the mark-to-market and said, okay, what did we want then, and um, what would we imagine it would look like 10 years from now, it's um, it's not it's not anywhere near what we had hoped it would be. Uh, and there's all sorts of there's all sorts of challenges for U.S. businesses on IP theft and um, market access and a variety of things. So that part of the bet didn't work. And then the third part of the bet, which was never an anchor of U.S. policy, but it was always said, and I think there was hope, was that with economic liberalization there would be political liberalization, and that um, and that the Chinese people and the and the and the United States and China more broadly would be the beneficiary of that. And that's not held true. And so what you're seeing, I think, is a fundamental reassessment of the relationship in light of those, those things. And China has become a, you know, a hugely important trading part for, partner for the United States, a hugely important part of the global economy. And the question going forward, uh, in my mind, is how to uh, recognize two things that are true at the same time. One is that there needs to be a working relationship with China and, and great collaboration on certain issues where only the two most powerful co- uh, countries in the world can solve the problem. Things like climate change is an example. You can't, you can't have any movement on climate change really without China and the United States uh, working together. Simultaneously, there's also going to be many areas where we compete, compete strategically for economic leadership, for political leadership, uh, for technological leadership. And so what's the right posture that the United States should have knowing that China is a relationship that we need to manage carefully and collaborate on in key issues, and at the same time as a competitor, that we need to build a capability and a self-sufficiency um, so that um, uh, we treat it as such, a strategic competitor. And so what does that mean? That goes back to the technology agenda I was talking about. I think that's critical to it. You're seeing this to some degree in the repatriation of supply chains. You saw this uh, raise its head very quickly with the pandemic and the dependence on uh, on supply chains outside the United States, particularly in China. And I think all of that's being refactored. Uh, and I think the by and large uh, effort to refactor is, is good. That's a good thing that needs to be done. I think the risk is that in pursuit of refactoring the relationship and rethinking the relationship, um, you know, it's possible that some some bad ideas could get <laughs> integrated into the mix, because we don't want to shut down our economy, but we want to be uh, careful about the kinds of investments. We don't want to, in my mind at least, stop having trade relationship with China, but we want to make sure those are fair and equitable and around the right sorts of activities. So getting the nuance right in a period where there's so much political um, benefit uh, of of being on the opposite side of China is the challenge. And what I'm hoping we'll do is, you know, as we get through the political uh, season here, be able to really reassess the relationship. How do we uh, move forward on the things that make the most sense? How do we uh, reconstitute some of the capabilities that are most important for our strategic competition and for our internal capabilities? And how do we get that balance right where we recognize the world as it is, not as we wish it would be, but also uh, don't do dumb things that are going to you know, both hurt the global economy and also hurt us. And that's, that'll be the challenge. Yeah, look, it's, uh, uh, we both know, David, it's a big challenge at this point, because in addition to the, the challenges that existed before uh, that were, you know, maybe more economic, although as you talked about, uh, the liberalization of, uh, of society was, was something that and it was, the, was part of the quote, original deal. And that, that's happened maybe less so in China. Uh, now you've got this uh, pandemic on top of it, and where did it start, and and all of that. So I think certainly it's post-election when when there would be 
the building blocks of trying to put it back. I think the stakes, it's interesting uh, because we've, we've seen different versions of this over our lives and, and over really uh, the, certainly the post-World War II world. The stakes for the two countries, as well as the rest of the world, are, are off the charts. So, yeah. uh, you know, it, it does kind of uh, bring us back. Uh, you know, it's not that dissimilar from where we were from a n- nuclear weapons standpoint with the Soviet Union at one point, whereby there was so much that each side could bring to bear, nobody could afford to let it start. Um, here, there's so much uh, downside, I think, for both sides. Uh, hopefully, they we, we both have to get in the room and start working through how we're going to make sure that the world functions well for everybody with under the, the dual leadership. Are, are you optimistic? When, I, when, I, when you hear me say that, do you think, yeah, I, I could see that happening, you know, again, nothing before the election, but maybe in 2021 and beyond. How, how optimistic are you when you look at that? Uh, I, I'm not sure yet, I think is the honest answer. I'm so glad you, you made the point you just made about the Soviet Union and so forth. I think, uh, I think what we should all recognize is this is the defining relationship of our bilateral relationship of our lifetimes. So this will define global affairs for the most part <laughs> for uh, the rest of our lives. And how it's managed will be um, one of the predominant uh, goals and challenges of every administration going forward in our lifetime. So that's a, that's a big thing to say. Uh, you probably know him well, Greg, but there's uh, Graham Allison at Harvard has written extensively about this notion of the, the Thucydides trap and this idea that um, in historical context, the majority of the time when there's a great power and a rising power, um, the great power in this case being the United States and the rising power being China, that, um, that, that the management of, those, of that conflict uh, has led to armed conflict, the majority of the cases. Uh, but he makes the case in his book you know, that these can be managed uh, in such a way that, um, that you, know, you, you can find some sort of coexistence going forward. So on the most severe scenario, which is um, you know, are, are China and the United, the United States going to evolve into some sort of armed conflict, I guess I'd put myself on the side of optimism there in the sense that I think that the stakes are so high and the cost would be so significant um, to both sides that uh, that in and of itself acts as some deterrent. Now, whether we can find um, a way to coexist, compete and coexist at the same time, make progress on global issues, and also be able to compete in ways that um, are both appreciated and understood by both sides but don't lead to conflict, that's the part I'm not so sure about. And I think it's just a question of really leadership on both sides um, to sort of navigate those most sticky issues. And uh, and that refactoring, I don't know a better word for it, but I'm essentially a reprioritization, refactoring the United States is still very much in flux. And so I'm not quite sure how the dust is going to settle on that. But um, but it's a it's a critical issue. And, and uh, David, how, how I mean, we're we're the two biggest and, and most powerful players, but we're not alone. It's a big world. How do, for example, the Europeans fit into this? Uh, you know, because um, it isn't. It, it, it hasn't been true that they necessarily just, quote, align themselves with the United States. If you look at Huawei and some of the decisions that uh, European allies uh, made uh, regarding the technology there and, and some of the decisions that are being made in the 5G landscape. Um, so how do the Europeans fit into this and uh, and other major you know, countries in the world. I, I guess after that, I'd, I'd start to talk about India and Brazil. But let, let's talk about Europe. You spend a tremendous amount of time there. Um, uh, is there a role for the EU here? Is the EU actually going to be functioning as well as they hope at the end of this? Is it, you know, some people wonder if the EU is going to sur- survive the whole current situation given the challenges in the South there. But uh, yeah. you know, how, how do some of these other countries fit in? Well, I think um, you know, obviously, if you thought about um, monetary systems and economic blocks, I think we're conceivably moving towards um, sort of a tripolar world where you have uh, the, you know, the, the rise of China and China being a significant player and a driver of growth. It's independent monetary policy, a you know, significant economic block in its own right. You have Europe and then you have the United States. 
Um, and I think that we're, we're, we're seeing that emergence. Um, as it relates to Europe, I mean, I'm by no means an expert, but just, just some uh, reflections. I think this is as challenging as, as coronavirus is and the global slowdown is for the United States. I think it is, is more challenging for Europe. And, um, and I think the second and third order consequences of what's going on in Europe uh, have not been fully seen or understood and will you know, continue to manifest themselves in the, in the coming months. And it, it gets back to a basic, you know, simple concept, um, which has always been at the core of some of the challenges in the EU, which it's very hard to have a common monetary policy and separate fiscal policies given the dramatically different needs of the of the uh, states in Europe. And so if uh, you're in Italy or Spain, uh, your needs for monetary policy are dramatically different than if you're in Germany or or, uh, or some of the northern countries. And this crisis, I think, is going to test the boundaries of that, perhaps even in ways beyond what 2008 did. And, um, and I would say that... Um, the future is very hard for someone who's not steeped in it to predict. I think the the thing that my friends who are more expert on this tell me is that never never think about the economic or the EU in solely economic terms. You have to think about it much more holistically in political terms as well. So the commitment to doing some things that may be suboptimally economic in some narrow sense are often overcome in pursuit of the broader political goal. But I think there's lots to worry about. I think uh, with the you know, transition of Merkel, uh, who's been a you know a stalwart leader, um, with some of the polarization you see within the European countries, with some of the challenges you see with the ECB being able to support some of the programmatic needs of of the countries in the South, I think it's um, it's going to be a very challenging period. Yeah, uh, you know one of the things that uh, defines so much uh, in the world. Uh, at every level, I say this all the time now, is leadership, effective leadership, whether it's a government, it's a university, it's a not-for-profit institution, it's a company like yours or mine, uh, the leadership, the vision, the ability to put in place uh, a great team and move forward is so critical. And, uh, you know, it's always in short supply. You know, we worry about our point in history and we say things are so hard and, you know, where are the great leaders? But Every generation worries about that, which is, you know, some some comfort for uh, for us today as we look around and want, uh, you know, Lincoln on the center stage uh, all over the place. Um, but you, you've been in a leadership role really a, a lot of your life. And in fact, we're trained for that in many ways, uh, you know, uh, from the day you you uh, you showed up at West Point. Um, what are some of the things that uh, that you'd uh, uh, set out for the group here and for our clients in terms of th the most effective uh, uh, principles that you bring to bear uh, from a leadership standpoint. And, and this can be when you were serving for President Bush, Bush 45. It can be when you were running a, uh, a tech startup. It can be when, uh, you know, uh, as the CEO of Bridgewater. Um, uh, what are some of the cornerstone principles for David McCormick on leadership? Ah, well, that's a big uh, that's a big question. I'm not sure I have I have great insights, but um, but I'll I'll try to throw a couple out there. Um, I think that um, you know, as I said, through the you know, the, I was a, the CEO of, CEO of the tech company in the tech bubble. I was at the Treasury. I'm uh, here at Bridgewater now during this period, and I think that having lived through um, you know a number of these. Time, uh, times of, of crisis, I think the, the thing that I've seen great leaders do in these circumstances is, um, as I, the point I made before, which is uh, a, a constant looping process of uh, diagnose and understand what you think the problem is, try to respond as quickly and decisively as you can, learn quickly from whatever works and what doesn't work, and loop again and loop again, because the nature of these crises, the nature of, of a, a challenge like this is that there's no set answer that's going to probably hit the mark right away. And even if the answer hits, the conditions will evolve. So the flexibility to, uh, to be able to move and learn from the failure and mistakes is, is really critical. And um, I think that in the crisis management that the Treasury is doing and in the crisis management we're all doing within our companies, I think having that 
degree of not not being afraid to move and 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 fail and learn, and then also having the agility and open mindedness to take the new data and iterate on it is really a, a, a critical thing for all of us to to keep front of mind. You're not you're not going to get it right. So that's that's one. Um, the second thing, which is really a learning from Bridgewater, uh, and it's taken me a while here, but um, I think in it's a bit to your question about the polarization in politics and so forth. I think the big thing I've learned most here, the thing I value the most, is that I used to um, you know, have strong opinions, uh, which I would then use as the starting point for every discussion in terms of making sure everybody understood my opinion. I would win the argument. And um, and the thing I've learned, uh, I've I still probably have pretty strong opinions, but I've learned to sort of put my opinions to the side for a second um, or a minute when I get into a discussion about where we're headed, what to do, how the situation might evolve, everything from how the markets are going to evolve to what the government should do to what we should do at Bridgewater. Put my opinions aside for a second and try to understand the facts and what other, what other people think about such things and then try to unpack their opinions so I literally have a better understanding of their opinion. I could almost make their argument myself. And then once I sort of feel like I totally understand the lay of the land, then try to come back with my opinion and put it on top of that. And the reason I say uh, I make that point is I think it's the thing that's most absent today in, um, in, in Washington, in the policymaking community. Everybody's charged with their opinions, their ideology. And I think, it's, I think they don't, often don't even understand where the other side's coming from. And I, I don't mean to suggest these things are easy to resolve. But I think a genuine attempt to understand, um, digest the problem, and then come back at it once you've done that with whatever overlay of your thoughts and opinions and ideology is a necessary step to, to good decision-making. I think it's a necessary step to good leadership. I think it's a necessary step to good policy. And I think it's probably one of the things that's most missing um, in today's chaotic, uh, conflicted, um, you know, polarized world. David, that that's spot on. I mean, to be honest with you, that's a that's been a journey for me. I'm still working on that uh, as a leader as well, um, and and it, and it's absent in this society. I think more than maybe uh, prior iterations and prior generations. Even even within within the university setting, I've got three uh, uh, children who are uh, uh, in and around that setting, and uh, you know, being able to hear the other side, understand it before you react. Uh, is so critical. And, and it, as you said before, if you're going to put in place a, a great leadership team, and, and, and I've got one, and I know you know you, you think you've got one, uh, Bridgewater, and, and uh, if you're going to have great leaders in a really strong team, you need to empower them. They've got to have a voice and you need to learn from them because you can't possibly uh, replicate the expertise and, and the uh, and what can can be brought to the table by all that talent around you. And it is probably the thing that is causing the partisanship the most everywhere in our in our country. So um, listen, I'm going to I'm going to leave it there. Uh, it, I, I did say to, to people about today that this would be uh, that we, we would walk around a lot of different topics and you would be able to pull them together in a thoughtful, concise manner and, and have it be uh, a very quick hour. And I think it was it was all of that. So thank you very much, David, for being here. Um, the kind of insight, uh, unique, proprietary that you brought to this conversation is what we're uh, focused on bringing to our clients uh, at Rockefeller Capital Management. So many thanks. Thank you. I love, love to be uh, on the call with you, Greg. Thanks for having me. and. Um uh, to all who are on the call, have a great day. I really appreciate being being part of it. And where I leave it, David, and you'll enjoy this at the end of every one of these is with the quotation of the day. And on the heels of listening to David McCormick and, and talking through with him here, uh, he he is uh, uh, he's a great leader. He's he's uh, he's had a spectacular run across so many different aspects of uh, of life in 20, 21st century America. Um, but he's also an optimist. Um, uh, and um, my quote of the day to leave everybody with is uh, Ernest Shackleton, who, uh, as everybody knows, or if you don't, it's an incredible story. His ship Endurance was stuck in the ice in the South Pole, uh, and he ended up getting his entire crew back safely 
through Elephant Island in a story that uh, if you're not familiar with, read the book. There's a documentary out now. Uh, but he said, um, uh, he said a lot of things about leadership, but one thing that stuck with me is he said that optimism is true moral courage. So a leader needs to be optimistic and ultimately set it out and, and say to people, that's where we're going and here's why it'll be a good thing when we get there, which David McCormick started uh, the dialogue with today as well. So uh, at Rockefeller Capital Management, I want to be clear, we are optimistic about our future and the hour that I refer to is our country, our clients, and our firm. Uh, and with my uh, my friend on the call here with uh, Bridgewater Associates as well. So many thanks. Have a great weekend all, uh, and we will uh, talk to you all soon. Take care.